You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. This afternoon we are reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 12. If you'd like to open up your Bibles and read along, we're also going to go f- to chapter 2 verse uh, 11. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than that other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit on our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow." So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. Spirit of God. Thank you, Clarice. Well, he was a remarkable man, a big man, almost as tall as me and maybe even slightly wider than me, uh, a man who filled 
the room, not just with his size, but with his heart, with his laughter, with his jokes, with his stories. He was, he was honest. He was an open book. He was passionate. He'd light up any time you got him talking about something that he cared about, whether that was New Zealand or his wife or good food, whatever it was, he would just light up. But the thing that he got most excited about of all was Jesus and the gospel. He'd tear up regularly when he'd be preaching and he'd tell the gospel. He'd been converted as a young man. He lived a pretty wild life up until then, but then Jesus met him and changed him miraculously. And so he loved Jesus and just had to tell everyone about him. A remarkable man then, and and he was my pastor. When you think about Christian leaders, who do you think about? Who has had the most impact on your life, on your faith, and what is it that you remember about them? For me, it was this man, Peter Owen, my pastor when I was in my 20s. He passed away last year after a brief and horrible episode with cancer. It was sharp. It was sudden. He was only in his early 60s. There was so much more that he could have done. But the church was packed for his funeral. Uh, There were people there from all over the place. He'd planted churches. He'd been a chaplain in the police force. He'd been an Air Force chaplain. And so they came from everywhere and they all came with these stories about this big man, a guy who just hummed with gospel love. That's what I remember about him. And that's how he would have wanted to be remembered as well. Uh, The theologian and writer D.A. Carson once reflected that if I've learned anything in 35 or 40 years of teaching, he said, it is that teachers don't learn everything I teach them. What they learn is what I get excited about, the kinds of things I emphasise again and again and again. Given that, he says, you better be excited about the gospel. That's what it was like with Pete. And it had the most enormous impact on me. Sitting under his ministry, I came to understand the gospel with a clarity and a joy and a, a freshness and a freedom that I hadn't ever had before and probably ever since, if I'm honest. And so I'll forever be thankful for his ministry. Quite literally, I tell people that he was the one who opened the doors of heaven so that I could truly understand the gospel. And so I will be forever thankful for him. Do you have someone like that in your life who you will thank God for? Well, we're in week two of the Second Corinthians series and today's passage is quite an unusual one. Essentially, it's all about Paul's travel plans and how he had to make some changes to his itinerary. It sounds incredibly boring and unimportant, but actually it's become incredibly important because it has undermined, the way that he's had to make these changes has undermined his reputation with the Corinthians and and jeopardised his pastoral relationship with them. And so it's vital that Paul responds to their questions and their misunderstandings, and we'll see how he does that. But as we do that, We're not just going to go into the details of that. What I want to see is how he leads through this, what kind of a leader Paul is. And at the heart of it all is the gospel. I think we see in this passage the way the gospel shaped and formed and defined Paul as a leader in a number of ways. But the first way I want to point out is his gospel integrity. I mentioned last week that Paul had something of a troubled relationship with the Corinthians. He'd planted the church on his second missionary journey. He'd spent 18 months with them, pastoring them, leading through uh, all kinds of things. 
after he'd left that church, he uh, had written a bunch of letters to them. Scholars think there were four letters that he wrote to the Corinthians. We have the second and the fourth ones in our Bibles. And from these letters, we see that there is a number of significant pastoral issues that he has to deal with in the church. Uh, the church is kind of uh, like the city that they lived in. It's hedonistic. It's ambitious. There's lots of competitiveness. And so Paul addresses his letters to them trying to confront that sin, but also call them to a higher vision. As we saw last week, they are the saints. They are the holy people of God, the church of God. And so they're to live up to that. So Paul was writing these letters to them, but he knew that that wasn't enough. He, he wanted to spend time with them. So he wanted to visit them and spend some quality time with them. So at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, he tells them, he outlines his plans. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend more time with you if the Lord permits. So he really wants to spend time with them, but, but you'll notice that he's quite tentative in how he makes his plans. It's, it's what he hopes to do, it's what he intends to do, but it's ultimately in God's hands. Perhaps he will do this if the Lord permits. You see, Paul understands that his life is in the hands of God and that circumstances could easily change if God does that. And so it would happen. The circumstances did change and so he wasn't able to make the trip as planned. And the Corinthians were incredibly disappointed about this. In fact, they weren't just disappointed, they were actually kind of disillusioned by Paul. They kept seeing these changes in his schedule as a sign of unreliability, that he was unsteady, perhaps even untrustworthy, that he was the kind of person who said, yeah, 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 I'm going to do this, and then he'd never do it. He didn't intend to do it. Now, this might sound a bit like an overreaction to us, like we live in the age of the Facebook RSVP where you just say going or interested or something, it doesn't mean anything. But in Paul's situation, it does mean something because it's really started to undermine their trust in him. Trust is something that is easy to lose and almost impossible to restore. Once it's gone, Everything can fall apart. This is true for all areas of life. You, you get a tradie in and you realise you can't trust them, you'll never call them back. You realise your child is hiding something from you and you start to wonder if they're always doing it. It's the same in ministry as well. I knew a bloke, a, a pastor, who, who lost the trust of the people in his church. He was saying things that they knew that they could prove were untrue. Now, he claimed that this was just misremembering or he just was, that he was right. In reality, that almost didn't matter. Once they'd lost trust in him, he couldn't restore it. And so Paul's ministry is in jeopardy right here. And how's he going to respond? Well, he responds by defending his integrity in the strongest possible terms. Verse 12, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. The conscience is a really big thing in Paul's ministry. In fact, it comes up something like 23 times in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 3, he says that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In Acts 24, when he's before the Roman governor Festus, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So this is really key for him. But what exactly is the conscience? 
I think we may kind of assume that it's the voice of God, but it's not entirely true. It can be shaped by God, absolutely, but it's not infallible like God. So, so Paul actually says that someone can have a weak conscience that needs to be strengthened or informed. And we also see that some people can lose their conscience, so to speak, because they keep shutting it out. So perhaps it's better to think of the conscience as our standard of morality, shaped in part by God, but also by other things. So Colin Cruz says, the conscience is not to be equated with the voice of God or even the moral law. Rather, it is a human faculty which adjudicates upon human action in the light of the highest standard a person perceives. Or in another way to put it is, this is a someone who lives a life of integrity, which I think we can define as living up to the standards we set for ourselves and others. You see, we all have ethical standards. Even people who seem to have little regard for morality will, in their own lives, will be outraged by the moral failures of others. And what we would criticise as excuses in someone else, we would say, we would label them as explanations in our own situation. A person of integrity, however, lives up to those standards, lives up to the standards they set for others and for themselves. They demand the best of themselves. And Paul can say that he does that. He can boast here in the testimony of his conscience. He and his colleagues have behaved with simplicity and godly sincerity. What he says, he means. He doesn't just say it willy-nilly, he says what he means. In fact, uh, that word translated godly sincerity in the Greek, it, uh, William Barclay explains that it could describe something which can bear the test of being held up to the light of the sun and looked at with the sun shining through it. He, he's saying, you can look at everything that I'm doing and you can look totally, you can look right into it because there's nothing to hide. In fact, he's even willing in verse 23 to, to call God as his character witness. So here is a man who practices what he preaches. This is a man of integrity who seeks his very best to live a life of honesty and truth because ultimately he knows that his whole ministry hinges on it. Look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is actually one of the most precious and significant verses in all the Bible. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the proof that all of God's promises happen, that God is trustworthy. As William Barclay puts it, Jesus is the unbreakable yes of God. Jesus himself writes after every promise of God, yes, this is true. Jesus is the personal guarantee of God that the greatest and the least of all of his promises must be true. It's a beautiful verse. But what on earth does it have to do with Paul's travel arrangements? Well, Paul is showing them the standards that he sets for himself. See, as an apostle, a messenger of God, entrusted with the message of the gospel, Paul wants his behaviour to mirror the character of God. If the message is to be believed, then the messenger must be believable. So he's saying, you can trust me in what I'm doing and what I'm saying because I see how important it is that I be a person of integrity. 
See, a Christian leader points to God, and so their life must reflect God's character. God is faithful, and so the Christian leader must be faithful. And all of us as God's people, I mean, we serve a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and so when we keep our promises, then we point to that God, don't we? We show the world what he's like. And by the same token, if we break our promises, if we become unreliable people, unfaithful, then we also show the world what God is like and we undermine the possibility of faith in the world. So we want people to trust us because we want them to trust God. R. Kent Hughes writes, because Christ is the grand consummating yes, God's unambiguous and ultimate yes, he is the ground and the fulcrum of all Christian ethics. Those who are in Christ and embrace him as the yes with all their hearts embrace truth and truth-telling as a way of life. So Paul, first of all, is a man of gospel integrity. Because of the gospel, because of the, the, the importance of the message of Jesus, he is a man of integrity. And also because of the gospel, he is a man of love. He loves the people that he leads and serves. So it must have been incredibly hurtful for Paul to have been doubted like this because he loved the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 4, he speaks to them as his beloved children. He recognised that God had sort of set him up as their spiritual father and elsewhere he speaks of a pride for his people, just like a father. He loves these people. He'd evangelised them. He'd planted the church. He had opened the doors of heaven, like my pastor, to so many people in this church. He'd laboured among them for 18 months, giving everything to them. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he speaks, he says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And so we can assume that that's how he approached ministry in Corinth as well. He, he gave everything to these people. And he says in 2 Corinthians 12, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Now, here is a man who gave everything to these people, who loved them. And yet here they are doubting him, which must have been so hurtful, particularly because it was out of love that he was making these changes. I said before that I sort of go into the details of his travel plans. I hope it's not too boring, but I think it's helpful for us to understand it or what I understand of it. Basically, Paul was doing a tour of the churches to raise money for the Christians in Jerusalem. They were uh, struggling and needed help. And he saw this as a wonderful opportunity for all the other churches to experience the grace of giving. That's what he talks about in verse 15. It's for Paul, it's, it's a grace not just to receive, but also to give it. It's a real blessing to experience that. And so he wanted the people at Corinth to have that twice. I'm going to visit you twice so you can have twice the experience of grace. But in the midst of all of his plans, he, he writes a letter to them, 1 Corinthians, and he finds out that it hasn't gone well. In that letter, he confronted some of their sin and they seem to have reacted very badly. And so he figures, right, I need to make a quick emergency visit straight away. So he hurries over to there. And we're told in chapter 2, verse 1, that it's a very painful visit. It seems like when he got there, he was confronting stuff and then people just stood up and, and rejected him. And then even his own supporters didn't help him. They didn't kind of stand up for him. And so he, he left very saddened by what had happened. 
He couldn't stay long, but he said, all right, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to try and come back soon to have a proper visit. And then as he's going away, he sort of realises that this is it's too dangerous to go back. Everything's too combustible. Uh, if one visit hasn't worked, there's one right, then two visits is going to probably make it even worse. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. And so he decides instead that he should send a letter to the church, a strongly worded one that challenges their sin. Uh, scholars speak about this as the severe letter or the letter of tears. And here in chapter 2 verse 4, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That, that's why he's writing. And this letter goes much better. So he's able to write this to Corinthians and the situation is changing. But I want you to see here that in all of this, Paul is seeking to love them. I want you to know the abundant love that I have for you. That's why all of my plans change just because I love you, because I care for you and I'm trying to do the right thing for you. And in this example, I think we see that the gospel, uh, the gospel leader should be a person of love. The messenger should represent the message that they're sharing. The message of the gospel is all about God's love, how he gave up everything for us, how he, uh, we are prized by him. And so the gospel leader must represent that, show that. And that's what we see with Paul. He says in chapter 2, verse 7, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. He, he, he cared about these people. They were written on his heart, he says. He had given himself to them. He identified with them. And really he had put himself in a place of vulnerability for them. See, he, he lived his life attached to these people. When they were going well, he was going well. And that also meant that when the things were difficult, he would also grieve with them. In chapter, uh, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he says, he speaks of the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? So he rides the, the contours of life with these people because he's given himself to them. And, of course, that's what Jesus does. As we saw last week, Jesus is with us in every experience because he gives himself to us. And so gospel leadership is about gospel love. And then thirdly, we see in Paul gospel commitment, the willingness to work through the hardest situations. You see, it seems there was a situation that had called for church discipline, a serious sin that had required strong action by the church and its leaders. We don't know exactly what it was, but we can guess in, in 1 Corinthians he'd highlighted a case of serious sexual misconduct. Uh, some guy was sleeping with his father's wife and he'd urged the church to do something about this. They, they needed to do something and they seemed a bit reluctant to do something, so he really pressed for it. So Paul might be referring to that situation, but I actually suspect there was something a little bit different. You see, in chapter 2 here, Paul implies that the sin has been against him Verse 10, he says that there's something that I need to forgive. He doesn't say exactly what it is, but perhaps, you know, it was when he came to Corinth and people stood up against him. 
So we don't know exactly what it was, but it was serious enough to necessitate church discipline. Now, maybe you haven't even heard of a church doing discipline like this before, but it might sound strange, maybe even abhorrent. I mean, this is a voluntary organisation. So what right does the church have to, to discipline someone? And yet there are, of course, other examples around us where this happens as well. The Greens Party, for instance, uh, has been doing this a lot recently as they fight over their poly- policy position on transgenderism. So to maintain the values of a group, sometimes you have to enforce those values, and that includes within the church. Now, I think it, it's important that we uh, kind of define what we're talking about here. See, sometimes there's obvious situations where action must be taken. Uh, Perhaps someone is a danger to others. I remember Coy and I stepping in with someone a few years ago who was effectively stalking someone else in our church. It might not be just a physical danger, though. It could be a a spiritual danger. Uh, We had a situation uh, where there was someone in a gospel community who was uh, boldly and kind of flagrantly sinning and and boasting almost about it. And so we had to eventually ask them to leave that gospel community because it was really affecting other people. There's also times where a leader might disqualify themselves by their actions or or necessitate some time out. And then we have to go public with that because they're, they're not around. So those kinds of cases are obvious. But something we're talking about here is a little bit more tricky. It's someone who's in the church, but they're guilty of significant sin. It's a pattern of sin that's been around for a long time, perhaps, and they just don't seem to be doing anything about it. They're not repentant. How how do you help them come to repentance? What's the church's role and responsibility in a situation like that? And, And what do you do if they don't respond? I would say that this is the very hardest thing in ministry. I've been in a number of these kinds of situations and it's always agonising, not just for the person involved but for the leaders involved as well. I mean, none of us are perfect. It's very difficult to feel like you're standing in judgment of someone else and it's very hard to get right. You always feel like you're either going too strong or not strong enough. We do it, though, because we must, because actually Jesus calls us to, but also because I think it can be one of the most profound expressions and experiences of the gospel. You see, church discipline reflects the values of the gospel and what we care about. First of all, it shows that we care about sin. We take it seriously. That's what we see in the gospel. The gospel tells us that sin is a serious thing. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6. Now, by God's wonderful grace, Jesus takes that death for us. He takes our sin upon himself so that we can be freed from that sin. But that whole process changes the way that we think about sin. If it was so serious that it cost Jesus his very life, then we have to take it seriously. If Jesus was willing to give up everything for us, then we should be willing to give up everything for him. Particularly, though, when we realise how horrible sin is. See, in ministry, you sometimes find yourself at ground zero with people where their sin has brought everything down. 
and has destroyed their life. It's a tragic sight, but it's also an instructive one. So you walk away and it makes you want to flee from sin because you can see how it seduces someone, how it entraps and overpowers someone. It makes you hate sin because you see its impact. You see, sin ruins everything. It ruins us. It deforms our instincts, our priorities, and destroys everything around us, our relationship with God, our relationship with others. And it can also destroy the church itself. See, Paul speaks about us as the body of Christ, that we're all interconnected, all one. In fact, even in this passage, he says in verse 10, that if if someone, uh, verse 5, if someone has sinned against me, they're actually sinned against all of you. We're all connected like this. And so when one person sins, it can affect the whole group of us. Just think about how a church can be split apart by pride or competitiveness or resentment or a failure to forgive someone. Like that can totally divide and split a church. Or think of the the poisonous power of gossip that destroys trust in someone else or destroys the reputation of someone else within the church. Or consider how lust can destroy a church. I had a friend who was uh, part of a church with some of the guys, some of the leaders were trying to get with as many of the women in the church as possible. I mean, can you imagine how that damages the culture of the church? So that's ultimately why we have to deal with sin. You see, we're God's holy people, the place where God chooses to dwell. And so sin in one of us can affect all of us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So gospel commitment means that we deal with sin because we fear the power of it in ourselves, in the lives of others, and in the life of the church. So we care about sin, but we approach it very carefully because we also care about the sinner. Everything that we consider with church discipline or confronting sin has to be done out of love for the sinner. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives his people clear instructions for how to approach church discipline. It's a multi-step process. The first step is to talk to the person directly. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's like you, you see the 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 danger of the sin that they're in. It's like they're teetering on the edge and you're wanting to pull them back to help them. So it's given in love, and you hope that it's received in love as well. Proverbs 9, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Oh, man, thank you so much for pulling that out. Like I, I hadn't realised what was going on. I, I, thank you. That's how you hope that it's received. But what happens if they don't listen? Well, Jesus says, bring someone else with you, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is an important step. I want you to see here that you're not gossiping. You're just bringing someone else in. In fact, you're being very careful not to gossip. You don't want to tell lots of people. You just want to kind of get one friend to help you, one or two friends who understand the situation. I remember someone saying that if you find yourself talking about someone, it's probably time to talk to them, right? Love means that you confront sin, not not to uh, build yourself up, not to make yourself look better or to reduce them. You're always seeking to help 
bring them along. And so you grab someone with you and you say, look, man, we both see this. Can you help us? And But also the other thing is that this other person can help you assess the situation. Like, no, no, I think this guy is repentant. I, I think it's okay. It's important you have both of these people coming together. Now, if that still doesn't work, then Jesus says, tell it to the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There's a lot in this, and it's probably really a few steps. It might be that you call in the elders or the senior leaders of the church, and they speak into the situation. They go and talk to that person and hope that their added authority will make an impact. They can work with that person and pastor them to seek them, seek to help them come to repentance. They may decide that there are certain steps that need to be taken to protect against sin. Maybe the person needs to step out of ministry for a time or, or perhaps they uh, just need to recalibrate their thinking for a time, deal with the sins and then the sins behind the sins. But always there's this real commitment here to walk alongside the person. Now, if they sense that the person's still resistant, they may need to start withdrawing some of the, the privileges of the Christian community. They, they might say, for instance, that someone shouldn't take communion for a little while. Communion is the symbol, the, the expression, the experience of our relationship with God and with each other. We come to the meal because we're welcome. But when you're in uh, unpenitent sin, if you're just rejecting and flagrantly denying God, then you're not actually welcome in his house at that time. You need to step back until you've dealt with that. Ultimately, there might even be a situation where you need to tell the whole church about the problem. The thinking here is that the person is so mired in their sin that there's good reason to think they might not even be a Christian at all. So you need to wake them up. And this is the most extreme step that you can take, perhaps. This is someone who, who's not just sort of sorry for their sin, but they're flagrantly pursuing it. You might need to take this step to tell other people about it. But this is a really big step and a really significant one that needs to be taken extremely carefully. See, I was in a church where this happened once. There was a woman who was uh, essentially a kleptomaniac. Like she would steal from everyone all the time. People had confronted her about this sin. The elders of the church had been called in, but it had kept happening. And so the leaders of the church felt com compelled to tell the church. We were told about her sin, the specifics of it, her failure to repent. We were warned to not hang out with her, you know, don't leave her alone, you're going to have stuff stolen. And as you can imagine, this was an incredibly awkward and difficult and sobering situation. And to be sure, I'm not, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure that it was warranted or that it worked. You see, I heard later that the girl was repentant, but I don't think I ever saw her again. She didn't feel like she could come back to church. She just felt too embarrassed. And that's one of the big risks of going public. See, the goal is not to just destroy the person, not to just shame them. I was reading recently about uh, what they used to do in Scottish churches. 
Right? They used to have this situation where if someone was caught in sin, they had this chair up the front of the church and they would get this person to sit there in this chair and then the preacher would just rail against them. And until they were so ashamed that they would stop doing this. But it might take three weeks, it might take four weeks, whatever it is. This poor person is up front. That is not how church discipline is supposed to go. It's not about just shaming someone. It's about trying to bring them to a point of repentance. In fact, you see here that Paul is very reluctant to go public. In fact, he says he doesn't ever name the sinner. Verse 5, if anyone has caused pain, verse 6, for such a one, he refers to this person as, as him, but he doesn't give the name. He doesn't even go into the details of the sin. Why? Because ultimately, I think he's trying to restore the person because that is always the goal. Church discipline is never just punishment. It's always purposeful. And the purpose is to bring about repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. So because church discipline is shaped by the gospel, it always leads to the end point of the gospel. In fact, it's right there from the start. Jesus says, confront your brother so that you can gain him, so that your relationship can be restored. That's why we do it. We see a brother or a sister in sin. We, we see the danger that we're in. And because we love them, because we care about them, we try to, to help them bring come back. As William Barclay puts it, Paul's whole motive in the exercise of discipline was not vengeance but correction. He did not aim to knock a man down but to help him get up. Paul's aim was not so much to punish an evildoer as to transform them. And when they're transformed, then we rejoice with them and embrace them. We welcome them home. But this is something that we find really hard to do. As one writer suggests, we find it hard to start spiritual discipline, but we also find it hard to stop it. Sometimes that's because of hurt. Perhaps when someone has sinned, they've broken trust. And we find it hard to rebuild that trust. That's very complex, difficult to navigate. But there's another reason why we might not stop the discipline. And that's actually because we like to feel superior to the person. We actually have this thing within us that is constantly trying to find someone to judge, someone to punish, to make ourselves look better. And so even when someone is repentant, we might not welcome them back because we want to feel better about ourselves. But there's great danger when we do this. And that's what Paul sees here in Corinth. It sounds like they disciplined the sinner, but now they're finding it hard to fully restore him. Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You see, as the church, we show the character of God to each other. We show that God cares about sin. We show that God cares about the sinner. And then we show that God cares about forgiveness and restoration. We want people to experience his grace and forgiveness. See, in Christ, all our sins are forgiven. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And so we seek to provide that to the sinner. 
But if we hold back our acceptance, our embrace of them, if we continue to condemn the repentant sinner, then they start to imagine that God is thinking the same thing, that there's no way for them to come back to God either. If we hold their sin against them, they will assume that God is as well. But if we forgive and restore them, then we will show them that God restores them as well. We will tell them the gospel. And the gospel leader leads the way here. Verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Forgiveness is a defining attribute of God. And so Paul wants to show the character of God and so he forgives the person who has sinned against him. He embraces that person. And in so doing, he tells the gospel. Well, church discipline is a strange and a complex topic. We could spend a whole lot longer talking about this, but ultimately I want you to see why we do this. It's because we care ultimately about the gospel. Because of the gospel, we care about sin and confront it. Because of the gospel, we care about the sinner and want to walk with them. Because of the gospel, we want to help them come to repentance and forgiveness and then for them to truly experience restoration. And when we do that, we have the most profound experience ourselves. Ephesians 4, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So when we walk someone through this whole process, they have the most wonderful moment of knowing the gospel. And so do we. We tell the gospel through church discipline. So this is a very strange and a different way of living. This is one of the things that makes Christianity so unique. This is a place, the Christian community, where there is a robust love, where we care so much about each other that we're willing to call each other out. And we receive that with humility. But this is also a place where we truly forgive and restore. See, the culture around us is unable to do this. Our culture is all about cancel culture, right? If you do the wrong thing, if you say the wrong thing, you're out. doesn't matter how meek and overweening your apology is. It doesn't matter how many promises you make to do better. You're out. You're cancelled. But not in the Christian community. Here, if someone is repentant, then they're forgiven and embraced because that's what God has done for us. And we do this carefully and lovingly, ultimately because we want the best for them. Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, looking to walk alongside them. Then ultimately we do it because we want them to be free. James 5, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I've been involved in a lot of church discipline cases. It's always very difficult. But there are some times where it is profoundly beautiful, where you see someone respond with beautiful repentance. And it's such a joy to restore them and to see them worshipping and ministering.
Well, this passage is a bit of a strange one for us, for me to preach on. This really, in one sense, is a sermon for me. <laughs> it's about gospel leadership. Studying it over the last few weeks, I've been so challenged by Paul's example and wanting to live up to it. So in a sense, it is a, I'm asking you to keep me accountable, asking you to say, look, we need you to be a gospel leader, a person of integrity, a person of love, a person of commitment. That's what you need to see in this church, gospel leaders. And if you aren't seeing that, then you need to come and confront me, to speak to me. But this is not just for leaders, of course, it's for all of us. It's for all of us to be people of integrity and love and commitment, to be the church that cares about each other, that represents the gospel in all of its robustness and in all its beautiful grace. Because when we do that, we will show the world the God that we serve, the God who is loving. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the example of Paul and what we can learn from it. We ask that you will humble us to receive it and we ask for wisdom with us as we seek to follow it. Lord, help us to be a church that is shaped and defined and built on the gospel. The reality that we are sinners, but that you have died for our sins and that you are working within us to change us. Help us to be a community that cares about sin, that cares about the sinner, that cares about restoration and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.